0: Escape, from plan A. A. Escape, escape.
1: another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, this is your host, Team. I've got a bunch of people with me today. We're going to be talking about something really interesting. Uh, but as usual, I guess I'll just do quick housecle- housekeeping on the Patreon. I haven't checked the numbers recently, but money keeps coming uh, in. So thanks for your continued support. Um, we've really been able to, you know, leverage that support to go and, and, and buy a bunch of articles that I think have been really good. Um, so please check out the website, planamag.com, uh, because we're really putting a lot more articles up, um, uh, than before. There's a lot of activity going on there. A lot of great articles are going up. And if you're interested in writing for us, uh, hit us up. Uh, the email is always in the show notes, editor.planamag at gmail.com. All right. So uh, today I got uh, Diana. Diana, how's it going?
2: Pretty good. How are you?
1: I'm good. It's been uh, it's been a while. And uh, uh, returning guest Ray. Ray, it's been it's been too long since we've uh, talked uh, on the pod, man. How are you? How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to be here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, Rich, I guess first time guest. Rich, how's it going? Good. How are you? Glad to be on. Good. Thanks. Uh, it's good to have you, man. Do, do you want to just uh, I don't know, give some basic uh intro? I know we're not we're not you know we're not all about uh, ourselves on this pod, but uh, you want to just give uh, like kind of roughly where you're calling from and uh you know all yeah, that
3: for sure. Um, so I'm calling from uh, the West Coast, L.A. Um, I'm a native of Bay-, Bay Area, but I went to school um, on the West Coast and then. Work in China for a little bit after college before going to law school, uh, and yeah, so I've been subscribed to the pod since I think the very beginning, and just and uh, a huge fan, and really glad to be on to talk about this topic.
1: Yeah, I mean we have chatted a lot before, so like we we kind of know each other through like the Discord and stuff. Um, but it's 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 good to have you on the pod, man. Um, sure. All right, so I don't I don't really have like an outline or an agenda for this pod, but we are going to talk about. I think something that is really on the minds of like a lot of people that I know in real life and in and also online, which is the just the, the growing sinophobia within America. And I think we all kind of recognize that that's happening. I think it kind of goes without saying. Um, and I know we have not talked about it directly on plan A yet.
2: I feel like I've just been seeing more stuff, um, You know in the media maybe since well okay here's here's what i've been seeing like i think there's like a new wave of uh of it in the media and like um from institutions uh that i haven't seen before but just day-to-day individuals i i've just always seen it all the time everywhere and it doesn't matter who it is but it's just, like, always there. You know, it's like...
1: So you're saying, like, the media's catching up to the sort of ambient xenophobia that's been there all along, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, it's always been there. It feels like, uh, you know, there's just, like, kind of like an undercurrent of anti-Semitism that's just always in the in the air. You know, it's like the same sort of thing. But now it's, like, more officially okay for, for people to come out of the woodwork.
1: Yeah, and unlike anti-semitism there isn't also like a countervailing instinct for anti-anti-semitism anti-anti-semitism there is no uh, anti-sinophobia that i'm aware of and i think that's kind of what really bugs me about kind of what i'm seeing which is an explosion of not necessarily like straight up racism against chinese but there's just a lot of there's just a lot of shit talking there's a lot of shit talking with Hong Kong in the news, with all the stuff about spying, every, everyone, you know, like every white Redditor is, 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 is on there posting about how Chinese people are basically brainwashed slaves. Like, they just can't let it go.
3: Yeah, actually.
2: Yeah, um, that's the one that bugs me. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Um,
3: well, I was just going to say that, like, when you say that there's no anti, I guess, anti-Semitism, there's no countervailing force. I think, if anything, there's an active resistance to recognizing Um, Sinophobia as a, you know, phenomenon that's worthy of concern and that's worthy of pushback, right? I don't think it's even just ignorance. I think if, from what we can observe from the media, there's a very kind of real internalized resistance to seeing. Um, anti-chinese racism as a legitimate and cognizable kind of
1: harm because they don't even see it as racism right they're saying that there is a legitimate incredible and present threat and danger of china Right, and they always insist that they're not talking about the Chinese people. This is no ill will towards the Chinese people. We're just talking about China in the abstract, without defining what that is. Right?
2: Yeah, but it's also like if there is a Chinese person that pushes back against anti against you know that is like anti xenophobic, then that person is a brainwashed slave. Like, that person cannot possibly have that opinion on their own without, like... Totally,
1: because you don't have access to the internet. You can't, right? Yeah. You're behind the Great Firewall. You're, you're brainwashed by your masters. You don't know what's good for you.
2: Yeah, so, and, like, if if they're in the U.S. or if they're, like, not in China, then they're still brainwashed. They're, like, some spy or something. Like, there's just no way for there to be pushback because, like, every kind of pushback is invalidated. And I also think, you know, that is the um, racial stereotype of Chinese people. Like ever since the Exclusion Act era, it was like they said Chinese people were complicit slaves. They were brainwashed. They like were mindless drones because they were um, they they were subjects to the emperor of China back then. And now it's the same thing only to the CCP. And so it's just like, it's bullshit. It's the same racism that has been there all along. And we just call it another kind of like political, um, political opinion instead of like a racist opinion. And I think it's also like, um, what's it called? You know, like a liberal, like like it's like a blind spot of white liberalism for like a number of reasons. Why there's no um, there's no pushback to it?
0: I'm really curious about the idea of yellow peril as an as a national concept, um, and how it's inextricably tied to yellow peril as it relates to our yellow bodies and yellow personhoods, and how really there is no compartmentalization of the, those two terms, right? And I and, and I think this is best exemplified, sort of uh, using, you know, personal data, sort of personal experiences. Right. So I grew up in Michigan and, you know, I grew up around a lot of white people, uh, you know, a solid, when I say solid, I, I mean like around 15%, 10, 15% of my, um, of my high school was, was Asian American. And, and the vast majority of them, uh, were, um, not the vast majority, but like uh, probably the plurality were non Chinese or if if um, if they were Chinese the, the, the majority were Taiwanese and I think how the racial hierarchy worked was you know uh, other Asians uh, then uh, Taiwanese and then finally Chinese on the bottom and what's really fascinating is that like you know every everyone knew that like you know to be Chinese was not cool and I remember I would get these backhanded compliments like, oh, I didn't know you're from the mainland, you know, like that. You're, you're too cool to be a mainlander, you know? And what I find really fascinating is that now, you know, there was, there's always a, a trend of plausible deniability of Sinophobia because you can, you can have an argument to be made that sort of this was based, this is just classism, right? The the Taiwanese immigrants in my hometown, tended to be a little richer. They immigrated a little earlier in terms of the immigrant waves. And so the the mainland Chinese tended to be a little poorer. Now you see the inverse. You see a lot of kind of rich Chinese flood my uh, hometown. And now the Sinophobia, though, is... Again, the plausible deniability is maintained because now it's an argument, not of class because the the mainlanders are richer. It's it's one of old money versus new money and sort of another shifting landscape of respectability. Um, and you know, and I find that that is that plausible deniability also links the ways in which we 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 view U.S. foreign policy and sort of the acts of the of, of the Chinese government. You, there's always, a, you know, a, another reason for the sign of. No, I'm I'm against communism. No, I'm against dictatorship, authoritarianism, all that. Um, but you know. I, I really liked, you know, what what Oxford had said in the previous pod about how it has nothing to do. I, I, China is not alone in what it does, uh, but it is sort of singular in what it is.
1: I, I think that's right. I think it's consistent with this article, which I'll I'll dig up. I think it was in uh, not the Intercept, but I'll I'll bring it up. But it was a, a sort of like survey of modern history, particularly of U.S. like foreign policy towards Asia, and I think it was in response to sort of the hostilities that were raised, that were sort of being inflamed when Trump came to office and with Kim Jong-un and how it was the, – the, the name of the article was something like, you know, it's really been about China this whole time. And they talk about the phrase, the loss of China, which was, um, you know, how it was described in the State Department when the communists, uh, you know, won the Chinese Civil War and took over the country and that everything that happened in Asia – uh, particularly East Asia with the US, it has always really been for a very long time, even going way back before World War II, uh, going into like the late 19th century, was really about China as the sort of like final crown jewel of Western imperialism. And so in a way, it kind of is suggesting that it kind of is always about China. And for the Chinese, it will always be a little bit different. Whereas the Japanese and the Koreans and other parts of Asia are seen as sort of potential allies in the cracking open of China. Uh, I thought that was a good way of framing it because I, I, do, I do fundamentally agree that that's what's going on. Because whereas Japan and whereas Korea can work out some sort of meaningful alliance with the US, I just don't think the same is possible with, the, with China. So China will always be the other and the extent to which Asians are the other, and the way that translate that into the, you know, the issue of yellow bodies in America, Asian people living in America, I think that you know, there's always this sort of pull, this sort of like polarity of Chineseness, even to a Korean or a Japanese person, and that that's the other underlying it, you know. I- that that's kind of how I see it. So I don't really see there being. I know a lot of people like compare what's going on with China now and the sort of economic fears that they're creating with uh, the American fear of a rising Japan in in the you know early to mid late uh, early to late eighties. But I think this is fundamentally different than that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know I I, I appreciate that that um, sort of historical context. I also think you know bringing up the the historical context of the long history of Asian America's um, tradition of renunciation and how, you know, us foreign policy, there's always a bad Asian, right? It was the Japanese, it was the Koreans, it was whatever. And whenever that happens, whenever there is a bad Asian, all the other uh, parts of the diaspora say, I'm not that. And you see that right now, like very, very clearly. And, you know, I think Oxford had said, like, even as a young child, You know, I I knew it was not cool to be Chinese. So I I, I said I was Korean. Right. And and I think that that's really sad. There's just no solidarity because everyone thinks that they can be differentiated.
1: I think they can. That's you know, I think that it's not necessarily an illusion. Like, see, I don't think that this is necessarily about it's not so simple as to say this is anti-Asian racism, uh, which is which exists, but I think that Sinophobia is something different. And it's it's not just whether you're Asian, but whether there's a certain quality in you that your Asian-ness allows the potential for. That's I think why for Chinese it's kind of a part or for Asians it's a kind of particularly tough environment to be in, because like uh and we'll get to this later, I guess, but I just think that there is a there's a really strange dynamic going on in the us in america with respect to china where we need to maintain a sort of opposite polarity to them like they need to be seen as fundamentally not just other but opposed to us and that just puts asians in a really tough spot i think and if you look at the way they've been going full mccarthy on uh you know on chinese people and just like i mean i wish i was like oxford and i just had like this uh, incredible uh encyclopedic memory of everything i've ever read but there's articles that and we'll put them in the in the show notes but like you know the links to like all those chinese medical researchers that have been uh forced to leave the country all those chinese students that you know are just are not getting visas uh you know and the sort of like uptick and just hostility towards, you know, this viewing Chinese foreign national international students as spies. Um, It's, it's just something that is a test. It's, it's a, it's a It's not just a test of loyalty, but a test like of like fundamentally what kind of, what polarity of human you are. Uh, So I just find it for me personally, just very disturbing and potentially dangerous I don't know. I'm not a. T- I'm not a tea leaf reader, but I-, I. I find this to be a particularly dangerous time.
3: Right. I-, I. will say one thing is that um. You know, on one hand, I think I agree that China is exceptional in some ways and the and the kind of challenge it poses. Um. And so Chinese identity, as a result, is a little different. But at the same time, I think there is a parallel between Chinese ness and Asian ness that's going on, which is that from the way that we treat Ch- um. You know, rising China and the anxieties that we internalize about it. You see the kinds of impulses that we, as Americans or people in the Anglo West, default to when we're threatened. Right? When when we see a threat from Asia or Asians, we react a certain way. And so, in that regard, I think um, the Chinese experience is instructive. Right? What happens to China today could theoretically happen to other countries or Asian groups that become too threatening and too challenging to a kind of, you know, imagined white interest, right? And so if tomorrow India starts surpassing the U.S., I think you would see a lot of the same things. You know, not all the stereotypes would be the same, but I think a lot of the anxieties would come out. And then the other thing I would add is that um, this isn't, this is, I think, a very Anglo-American phenomenon, right? If you track kind of the Sinophobia, um, the discourse around the China threat, it's very much advanced um, and, and spearheaded by the five countries in the Five Eyes Alliance. And so Australia is actually the country that's ahead of us in this discourse. They're leading. Uh, if you see the kind of the, the accusations that have been made against, I think, the first Chinese-born um, parliamentarian there, Gladys Liu, you know, accusing her of being a communist agent when she's been in the country for like three decades. You know that that if you if you follow you know Australian politics even slightly because I'm I'm no expert, uh, you see that you know the the level of hysteria is if anything worse than it is in the U.S. But what happens in in other Anglo countries um, has a tendency to spread.
1: I think that makes sense in a in a weird in a way because if you consider you know the the Anglo that's pretty much the largest language that's that's the largest language uh, or most widely spoken language on the planet and number two is Chinese so you could you could almost see it as sort of like a, a fundamental a, a fundamental antagonism between almost like language spheres you're
2: saying that if anybody was uh, the how China was they would be similarly antagonized but I just don't feel like that's the case like I think it would just be Uh, totally different if it was like India or Brazil or something. I think it feels more like um, like Sinophobia now. It feels more like how Japan was viewed in not the 80s, but like the 20s, like before they were, you know, a military base for the U.S. But when they were actually like looking at becoming an imperial power in and of themselves, that could potentially, like, surpass a white country. Like, that's the only close thing I could think of to what it feels like now. And that's another yellow country.
1: Problem with trying to resolve that, to me, though, seems like there's really no data. Because I think we're, I think the challenge that, China's presenting is fundamentally different than anything that came before. And I think, you know, Kieran Skinner in that, in that semi famous speech where she said, Do you remember that speech? She, Kieran Skinner heads up like the top policy think tank within the State Department. yeah, yeah. And she's a very yeah. in the Trump administration. Yeah. And so she had said uh, something, you know, at a, at a, at sort of like a, like a public conference that, that China was not only a, you know full spectrum threat to american interests or american dominance uh, but it was also a not a caucasian one and that that rankled a lot of people including china kiran skinner by the way is an african american lady wait what was not a caucasian one the chinese threat unlike the russians i mean unlike the soviets it was her point the context of this was distinguishing the threat of the china of chinese versus the soviets the, the way in which we can't see this is simply a repetition of the Cold War with the Soviets. She said, speaking as a black woman, and I thought that this was appropriate to say, even though people pissed off a lot of people, and sometimes the truth hurts, she said that this is the first time America has faced such a threat from a civilization that's not Caucasian, not white. And I thought that that was very telling. So, maybe, Diana, the, the, you know, the one maybe data point we have on this is our attitudes towards the Soviet Union, you know, at the time during the Cold War. And was that different than what we face now? Uh, in a way, it's similar because I think we also thought of, you know, McCarthyism was really very much about there was anti Semitism and anti communism wrapped up into this Soviet identity. But you're right. I think that there is something fundamentally different because, the Chinese are Chinese and i can't necessarily prove that but i think the fact that senior officials in the state department are making note of that really kind of validates your gut instinct
2: yeah i'm i'm saying there's like a specific like yellow peril phenomenon that just is like qualitatively different
1: cuz you're saying it wouldn't even apply to someone so, to say india or something yeah yeah that could be true
2: but I'm, I'm thinking about like Japan, you know, like in the ni- early 1900s, that was more of a similar like yellow peril imperialist com- competitor threat. Maybe not as like full scale, like maybe not as full scale just because of like geographical reasons. I don't know. But um, like that was that was the first and only time that there was a non-white threat to western imperialism was japan before world war ii
3: yeah you know what this conversation reminds me of though um when we when we're talking about like whether we see the chinese as as, you know so so categorically different um, i think it was it was it um i pulled it up i think it was justice harlan in the plessy dissent so it was the decision in which you know the supreme court upheld segregation Um, for the first time in the late, I think, 1800s, right? There was a kind of a heroic dissent saying that you know, the government should guarantee equality before the law of all citizens of the United States without regard to race. Then the next paragraph was, there is a race so different from our own that we do not permit those belonging to it to become citizens of the United States. Persons belonging to it are with few exceptions absolutely excluded from our country. I allude to the Chinese race. Um, and the, the point of this, uh, in saying this, Justice Harlan was making a point that you know it's ridiculous that we allow uh, a Chinaman to ride in a passenger coat with, coach with white people, but not citizens of the black race. And I, I, I mean, this is—I think this is kind of oddly telling. You have like a really progressive figure in history coming out and saying that you know the Chinese are so different that we just we can't make them citizens, right? It's been. Well, over a hundred years, but I mean I think I think the if if yellowness is a threat, then the Chinese are the most yellow of the yellow people.
2: Yeah, but I mean that's not surprising at all. Like like black citizens got a lot of rights based on their non foreignness compared to Chinese people. Like black Americans became got the ability to become naturalized and get citizenship and vote or black men, based on the comparison of, uh, you know, they were free American citizens in comparison to, you know, Chinese mindless imperial slaves. Like, that's that's been the rhetoric since the Civil War.
3: The thing that scares me now is that, you know, xenopho- a phobia is defined as something that is an irrational fear or something, right? But I think a lot of the times what you'll find people arguing in not-so-subtle ways is that it's not xenophobia because it's, like, rational, you know? And I don't mean – they don't say that in, like, a racist – they don't intentionally mean that in a racist way. What they'll say is something like, well, you know, the Chinese government is, you know, sending its tentacles and its agents out to recruit people as spies. And, you know, there's some evidence that there's a lot of industrial espionage going on. So, you know, when we, like, um, you know – string um, Chinese researchers up on on uh, uh, trade secrets or economic espionage charges. Like, we're just following the law. This is completely rational. This is not a phobia.
1: I think that that's really interesting, but it's also true and based, it's couched fundamentally in something of a self-deception. And... You know, the Fu Manchu imagery and all that stuff, the Yellow Peril. You know, I, I want to say that that actually has a much deeper root than just like the early 20th century or late 19th century. You know, I feel like the image of the Oriental Other, and it goes to like that book, you know, Said's book, Orientalism. I mean, I think that in a way, it is. there is some truth to this idea as a Chinese-American I would definitely, I would have a hard time coming up with a culture, you know, like like a ma- like a major presence of on the planet culture that is further in sort of distance, cultural distance uh, from Anglo culture. I mean, I do think that there's some truth in that, and that can be seen just in difference in language and, and how difficult it is for an English speaker to learn Chinese. I think it's rated, I think almost all the East Asian language are rated the, um, as the hardest to learn uh, by the State Department, by their whatever, their their estimation of how long it takes to pick up the other language. And just as someone who sort of straddles both cultures, I can see that there, there's truth in that. So I can see that Chinese are considered very, just very, as alien as you can get, in a way.
2: I, I feel like that's just like a, in, like a implicit bias, though, because like, to me, um, Chinese and English are grammatically very similar, and it's like they're they're pretty similar in like fundamental ways.
1: But what about the cultural experience, though? Because I I would I would vouch for this idea because uh, I don't think there's any harm in saying it. You know that being being Chinese and being American are just very. I mean, it's it's really hard to translate one experience into the other.
2: Yeah, but you could say the same thing about being anything and anything else.
1: No, I don't think the same would necessarily be true of being, like, German, you know. I, I, I just think that... But wouldn't that apply
3: to any East Asian culture, almost? Yeah.
1: Yeah, right? it, like, it there's would, no, yes. The I
3: mean, cultural distance between us and Japan is just as vast. And probably us and Korea as
1: well. Yeah, the difference there, though, is I think that we have political reasons to try and minimize the perception of that difference. Right, Whereas with course. China, we... You know what I'm saying? But yes, I I do agree. I think it would be true of any East Asian country. But I'm not saying that that's necessarily, I don't think there's a problem in saying that. That's not a value judgment. I just think it's kind of true.
2: No, I don't. I just think it's not true. And I think that somebody saying that is they're trying to make a value judgment. Or they're trying to broaden, like, they're trying to widen that gap for some political reason.
1: They are trying to widen that gap. And I think the reason they're doing, and I'll offer this, I'm not saying this is a complete explanation, but I, I think this is the pattern that I'm starting to see. Which in a way allays my fears, but also makes me kind of, I don't know, I'll just describe what I see. But think about the things that we say about China. We, the the issues that have become really hot button lately, they're really interesting, the kinds that come up. So, Number one is this whole thing about the Uyghurs and, and the, the detention of Muslims into these million plus concentration camps in Xinjiang province. Now, there's definitely something going on in Xinjiang province. The only thing is that there's a hysteria over it, and I just don't know where that comes from. Why all of a sudden do Americans give a shit about Xinjiang? I don't, where did that ever when did we even know that there was such a place called Xinjiang and that there was a people called the Uyghurs? It just it's not something that Americans even knew about before. And suddenly it's become one of the most pressing political issues of the day when it comes to foreign uh, Actually, international do, relations. You know, th-
3: we do know about the Uyghurs from the war on terror. There were a couple dozen Uyghurs who were imprisoned in Guantanamo who we've ended up, you know, we never charged with terrorism crimes or we just couldn't make any charges stick. And for the longest time, I think the Obama administration tried very desperately to repatriate it, to find countries for them to go to, because they didn't want to send back to China, because I think there was a real fear of, you know, torture and imprisonment there. But it, they didn't want them to send it to the U.S. In fact, um, Frank Wolf, who was one of the most outspoken anti-China and pro-human rights uh, Republican congressmen at the time... Um, you know, made a point of rejecting the Uyghurs when it was proposed that some of them would be settled in his home district. And he said he didn't want terrorists settling in Virginia. So I think we, we do know about the Uyghurs, but just not in the heroic ways that we would imagine.
2: You know what I think it is? I think they are, it's America projecting their own Islamophobia and their guilt about Islamophobia for the past 20 years onto China.
1: I think that's right. I think we're projecting a sort of like national shadow onto China because of the, like, there are so many things that are worth actually criticizing about China that are worth, you know, us thinking about. Um, but that I don't think is necessarily one that we've cared about in a long, like, I don't think that Americans have ever given a shit about, you know, the rights of Uyghur people, you know, as a public issue it's it's we're not even aware of it the other one think about huawei think about the things that have been being said about huawei and the the hysteria around huawei uh creating devices that are going to spy on americans and surveil us and report us our conversations to the government you know i've done some research there is actually not a single documented case of that actually happening with huawei gear there's no evidence for that happening there Purely based on the speculation that if the Chinese government wanted to do such a thing, that they could. But as far as I know, they never have, and there's never been. I think there were some false reporting about it in Bloomberg, which was later. uh, They said that there was a chip that the Chinese had installed for this purpose. Later turned out to be completely false reporting. It was completely debunked.
0: I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence of uh, the ways in which uh, China, like, Uses its corporations to essentially uh, gather data, um, create uh, you know a, a very data-driven surveillance system, all that. But I, I just don't think there's any evidence that it's any necessarily worse than what the United States is doing. You know, I got an interesting discussion with um, a security engineer at work about this, um, and her uh, her perception. You know, it basically, it's because I have a Xiaomi phone and. She has a pixel and, you know, and, and I basically said, like, I'm just not, we all know, like what Google is saving of us and, and the, you know, the, the interactions between, you know, our government and our data pipelines. So why, you know, why do we have so much latent fear at these Chinese products, you know? Um, and her response was just basically like, I trust Google a little bit more, but my response is, yeah, but we're Americans. Right. And, and that is the unique difference. Right. If we were Chinese foreign nationals, there might be a reason actually not to use Huawei products. <laughs> right. Who's that's going right. to use. That's,
1: that's exactly right. Who,
0: who's 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 going to use their technology against them, their own citizens. Right.
1: Exactly. I don't think they care what I'm saying to you. You know, they, why do the Chinese want to spy on like what some guy in Ohio is saying to some guy in Minnesota? They don't care. Unless they're Chinese, as you said, unless they're Chinese, yeah,
0: we have every reason to be more scared of uh, like Facebook and Google and the NSA than any Chinese corporation.
1: I think that's the crux of it. Ray is exactly what Diana was talking about. That's a, it's another example of projection. The, the the fact that we're scared, like when 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 your friend said that she's just trust Google more, you know that that's a that's because I think of an intentional bias that's created. By the American media, where we see them manufacturing stories about how terrible Huawei is, which they later have to retract. But of course, once it's out there, the retraction doesn't matter. But on the other hand, totally ignoring other blockbuster stories that we really should care about. For example, when Edward Snowden recently said that the com- the company that we really need to fear and perhaps the worst surveillor of any technology company on earth is AT and T. And not only he's you know he's not making that up. He has access to the – or he had access uh, to what AT&T and the NSA actually were doing in terms of AT&T giving the NSA a direct tap into the fiber optic channels that were coming out of the Pacific Ocean, right? So we know for a fact, and that's been reported on and substantiated and has resulted in Edward Snowden being the most, most wanted man in, you know, in in America, that AT&T is the, co- the company that has actually done all of the things that we fear – uh huawei could do and so i think again it's this you know but but all we do is talk about huawei and i do think it's a convenient projection for us to just kind of ignore the fact of what's actually going on and say okay well at&t snoops nsa snoops but it's not nowhere near as bad as what china you know what huawei does to everyone so what do i have to worry look
2: at hong kong too like what's the big issue there police brutality
1: yeah yeah
3: I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it, like, I I keep saying this, but, like, I think our, you know, the way that we advocate on these issues, it's less about the objective merits of the issue than it is about basically identity politics, right? It's like a way for us to feel as if we're more free, we're more liberated, we're more enlightened. Um, We're just better, you know, no matter how ugly or terrible Facebook and Google, you know, Become and they can never rival Huawei in sheer evil, you know. Or no matter um, how brutal we are to our own minority populations, it's nothing compared to what they do to the Uyghurs over there. It's a it's a coping mechanism
1: for us. I think that that's very true. But do you and and I just want to quickly mention uh, or agree with Diana that I think the stuff that they've been saying about Hong Kong and the way white people have been like riding LeBron is just really. Like it's really quite transparent to me that this is just an outpouring of frustration against the black man by a white Americans who really have had it, have really just just have are just fucking tired of you know being all careful about what they say and really think uh, around black people, and that once they found this example of a famous black man who has a political identity, say I don't really care about what's going on in hong kong that's not my business suddenly they start associating him with underwriting police brutality that is just one of the most transparent and egregious examples of i think of what's going on in terms of this coping mechanism that you're talking about rich and um but i think that and I'll, let me put this out there and i'm curious what you think about it all of you is that if if in case if in fact that this what we're seeing here lately In terms of the demonization of China that if it's a coping mechanism what that means is and if you think of it in sort of like psychological terms we don't really want to do anything about it we're we're happy just kind of thinking vaguely and abstractly that China is just worse than the US that no matter as bad as we get as long as we're not as bad as what we imagine China to be we're okay And that just kind of underwrites our decisions or our inaction. And so I don't see it. If that's the case, then I, I guess I have this somewhat cynical but optimistic hope that they're not, Americans aren't really serious about doing shit about what they're, they're, they don't want to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to this stuff. They're not going to send military to go free the Uyghurs. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to, uh, you know, Whatever they think they can or can't do with respect to Huawei, or escalate that into you know totally dismantling global trade, they're not serious about any of this shit. You so so that I mean? that
0: that so that's the that's the crooks, I think, of the function of all these narratives. Right? Does d- does every country have their own propaganda? Absolutely. And does every country have their increasingly a uh, surveillance state? Absolutely. I mean. The the difference I think is that in some ways, um, so much of American identity um, is predicated on on shitting on shitting on uh, you know the the cultures and governments of other. Uh, of other countries. Now, that is that is a unique difference. I mean, obviously, there's also unique differences in the the you know the depth and degree of civic life in China. There there is real differences there, totally. Um, but I think when you come at the core of um, American versus Chinese identity, so much of Chinese identity was like what American identity was a hundred years ago. It's it, it, there's national pride in economic growth and heavy industry. Right? The idea that we can, we can point at that bridge, right and you could say we did that. or we can point at that technological innovation. We could say we did that. In the absence of that uh, of you know, that comforting national narrative, now the United States can't say that, right In terms of growth, in terms of heavy industry, in terms of in some technological advancement. And so we need other levers. We need moral levers. We need uh, moral contrast, right? When you, when you, you know, the, the number one question I always got when I, when I lived in China uh, from Chinese nationals were, was, you know, so you lived in the United States, what's better, the United States or, 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 or China? And I don't think that's also unique to, to Chinese nationals. I think Americans ask that as well. Um, and I think that so much of that question is answered in sort of what we can build, the growth that we bring, the, the creature comforts that we can accrue, not these like moralistic terms. I think it's really telling that essentially China is using uh, the, the, the sort of national narratives of uh, the United States. It's the United States playbook, right? Uh, and, and very telling that the United States, that we as Americans no longer have that, that lever for a national narrative
3: to kind of extend on that. Actually, I think if I agree completely and, and to the extent that we think, you know, that the U S now sees, um, moral distinction as the key to its, to maintaining its superiority, then it also explains why the U S just is absolutely unwilling, I think, to, um, recognize, you know, Sinophobia as a real and and, um, objectionable kind of a phenomenon right because if you if you recognize that then you also have to recognize some grievances from china from chinese people um and not all of whom are aligned with the state um and and that means that we might not have that last little bit of moral edge that's keeping us above those dirty chinese people
0: that's right well if you if you have to forego moral uh arguments then where does that leave you as a flagging superpower that will no longer be the world superpower, um, you know, that has committed atrocities, uh, you know, the world over historically and currently, where, where, where does that leave you for a national identity? I'm, I'm more curious about the American uh, national identity than I am of sort of mainland Chinese national identity, you know?
1: I think it leaves us ripe for revolution. I mean, I do. I I think that it leaves us ripe for... There's going to be a political... And there already is a political discontinuity between the older generation and the young in this country. I think the big division here in America is... But really, when we talk about class, we talk about race, but we also need to talk about age. And I think... I'm not saying every young person is seeking revolution in America, but I think that there's a significant shift in the way young people think about their national identity. And I think you see some that are going ultra hard, right. And and they're, they're clinging on to just bizarre notions of American nationalism that pretty much add up to an adapted form of sort of Nazism. Uh, and you also see others who in some way are either, you know, are taking an opposite view and saying that, pretty much the whole project of national identity in America has been corrupt from day one. I think I think we're heading towards a a more serious political division in this country. I don't think that there's going to be a singular there's going to be a singular construct of what it means to be American. I think what it means to be American is going to be is going to be defined by a division and an antagonism going forward.
0: I mean, I would agree with that. I think I'm more focused on the hypocrisy of of liberals, though. I know that you said, like, we're going to go hard right. But that is really what irks me the most, is when good liberals sort of uh, buy into the Sinophobia. And, and you know, I got a taste of this, too, when I was living in China, when, you know, say my really well-educated, super brilliant, like, Chinese friends would tell me stuff like, like, I remember it was super surprising to me when I heard for, for the first time, uh, a Chinese friend say, "Yeah, like I don't know that many Chinese people who like Ai Weiwei because he panders so hard to to the West's tastes. Um, and it wasn't like it, like a a blind. You know, every every country also has like their hyper nationalistic and kind of ignorant people too. You know, this person was not that. It was just like yeah, it's just like Ai Weiwei's bad taste. And I remember repeating that to um, American friends, and they'd just be aghast, like how do you how do you dislike Ai Weiwei?"
1: You know stuff like yeah, that it's like you're profaning <laughs> it's like you're profaning a freedom fighter I'm like dude he's corny yeah, exactly exactly he is super corny I mean
2: well it's because they have bad taste you know what <laughs> I find interesting about you know like you're talking about like our like America's national identity now it's like I just feel like we're at some sort of turning point where like people are projecting all of these um, national American issues like problems onto China and it just speaks to how fucked up we are. But like we, I feel like most Americans, like they don't really give a shit about China. They just want their own issues to be fixed, you know, and they'll take anybody. And I think they're, it's, it, I feel like a, it's like fundamentally a little different um, from the the previous like waves of xenophobia that I've seen you know, like in the 90s when uh, the U.S. bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, you know, like um, it was like really bad. But like now it just feels kind of more pathetic. The The anti-Chinese racism is just like, OK, really? You know, I don't know. And also it's like, yeah, everybody is really xenophobic right now, but everybody's also really into Andrew Yang You know, they're like, oh, yeah, he like he actually, you know, is is solving our problems. He is basically like people look at him like he is a potential like savior of America. And I feel like there's some sort of like national jealousy going on where like, you know, Ray was saying like like China has these um, actual like tangible milestones of progress that everyone can point to. And America working class white people want that. We want that back. They want that back. And they look at China and they're like you have the thing that we should have. Why don't we have that? Because the, you know, our government fucking sold us out.
1: That, but that that w- that but that would be the mature thing to say is I'm, that the yeah, reason, I'm, you know. But what they say instead is that the Chinese are just fundamentally corrupt and they're right, cheaters and they're right. You know, they steal our IP and they, which is, a, by the way, I was of an IP lawyer. That's a bunch of fucking bullshit. But yes, okay, so they steal the IP. Yeah, um,
2: well, I, I know it's, it's, um I, I think, like, when they say that, what they actually mean is, holy shit, we got shafted. Like, that's the feeling. And then what, yeah.
3: But the thing is, I think there's a, there's a lot of coping going on. And I think, I'm, I am think you guys are right in that there's, there's a certain amount of, like, it is, it is a little pathetic on some level, but I am genuinely concerned about the elite consensus. And what I mean is, like, you have both parties very much signed up to this idea that China poses a virtually existential threat to us. You have the bureaucracies completely marching in lockstep. Um, and there you see, you know, this is why you see like a massive ramp up in economic espionage prosecutions of Chinese people. I mean, there was a study, I think Cardozo Law Review uh, did like a study of this, that there, there was just a catastrophic number of prosecutions since like 2009. So basically whenever China, you know, when we realized that China was really a threat. Um, and I think there's also been a, a kind of a great drying up of um, Chinese investment into Silicon Valley, into high-tech sectors because of the scrutiny we've dedicated. Um, and there have been visa issues for Chinese students as well. And so what, what that means is that, like, you know, for the longest time, I think people assumed that, that um, the rise of China would kind of, you know, a rising tide would lift off boats and would lift Chinese Americans as well, right, um, through Chinese investment, um, through greater improved um, trade and, and relationships between both countries. And now we're seeing that that's not guaranteed at all. You know, I think tens of billions of dollars in, in funding in Silicon Valley have completely dried up. Um, That means that a lot of people who might have otherwise gotten jobs won't get them. Um, That means that Chineseness is probably looked at as a liability, not an asset. And that means if you are um, thinking about jumping ship to work for another company, uh, least of all a Chinese one, um, you better be damn fucking careful before you get dragged in front of the DOJ. But I think the elite consensus and I think the way the government sees this has changed dramatically. And that is something that concerns me.
1: But the elite consensus used to be the opposite of that, right? You're saying there was a flip flopping of the elite consensus. And the elite consensus used to believe that free trade and economic engagement and foreign direct investment going both ways and increased, you know, cultural and academic exchange, et cetera, would eventually trigger the collapse of the Communist Party and China would become a free market that the U.S. could then come in and exploit and you would see Citibanks and starbucks and tgi fridays everywhere in china just like uh we think we see them everywhere in tokyo which we don't is that the consensus that you think has been overturned because i think that was the consensus up to a point right and then we realized that's not going to happen
3: yeah and um you know I, i think that's absolutely right and that's why you see um people like um you know Bill Bishop, you know, and, and, and a lot of other China watchers who harp on this idea that, you know, that they were lied to, that the China, there was a China delusion. I'm not sure the exact words for it, right? But that basically we were sold um, a bill of goods um, when we let China into the WTO. Uh, and that, um, you know, instead of it being a two-way relationship, China has just stolen everything from us and given us very little back. And now we're, we're staring down the barrel of another superpower. And I think that consensus has changed.
1: Can I propose this, though, and, and I'm curious about Ray's response in particular because, Ray, you're, you're saying that when you said that you were really, you know, kind of irritated by the sort of, like, blatant xenophobia of liberals, I'm curious how you felt about the sort of, like, kind of ridiculously naive belief back then, the liberal consensus that the Chinese were, you know, were going to be our best friends. And that all the all the white people were going to learn Chinese, their kids were going to move to China and make their fortune there, you know, all the nice white boys were going to marry a nice Chinese woman that was going to, you know, be their ticket to Chinese society and all this stuff. I mean, that must have been annoying as hell, too. When was that? I'm not, I'm not super familiar with that, actually. I think there was a super familiar with that attitude. Uh, yeah, or that, that trend or that wave. I think that began probably somewhere in the 90s, late 90s. And it, it was when sort of the dust had settled from Tiananmen Square in 1989. We had been talking about the Chinese miracle of economic growth of 10-11% throughout the 90s, starting from a very small position, so it wasn't very tangible how big a deal this was probably until the mid to late 90s and then you started seeing a lot of american companies trying to go invest in china you started seeing a lot of american firms open up offices in beijing and shanghai for the first time and then you started seeing some people not many but a few get rich in china and there was this sort of like very open embrace of china back then this might have been maybe more my time than yours but there definitely was a time when china was seen as the net you know the great liberal hope of the next you know the next piece of the sort of communist scourge to fall and China would become like us. And of course naturally we, our, our, our economic system and our, our, our companies would be so much more advanced that we would just go over and show them how everything's done and take over everything. I mean I think that was the dream back then.
0: I think that was predicated on the idea that of regime change. That you know that the, the, the economic opening it was. up would, it was. would
1: cause regime change, and I think or, or or significant liberalization that has been reversed under Xi. Yep.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and that hasn't happened. And and what what has happened? Right. No regime change, and yet economic wealth has increased. I think uh, quality of life has increased. All these markers of sort of bourgeois uh, respectability has increased, and yet re- the regime change has not. And so I think that that does something to an American psyche that has, you know, that, that, that has all these uh, sort of like foundational pillars of uh, democracy tied to free markets, all those assumptions, you know. And I think that, that that's a real, it's hard to see that, you know, because it, 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 before World War II, what, that was, you know, democracy and, and its relationship to free markets was the great hypothesis, right? After World War II, it was the great answer. Right, and so much of American identity was is, is tied to that answer, the great answer, the great solution, right? Um, and and so I I think there's an unsettling quality about seeing uh, China
1: that's tied to that. I think that's right because I, yeah, no, I agree. But I, I I'm just saying that the belief that that was going to happen was very annoying as well. And so the if, if to the extent that liberal. Consensus has flip-flop between this sort of self-congratulatory notion that America is the, you know, is what liberalizes and, and, um, liberates the world, especially in Asia and teaches, teaches them how to be rich, teaches them how to be happy. You know, there was a very patronizing tone to that consensus. And what I guess what I want to say is that the sort of things that Trump had said about Japan back in the eighties when he was advocating for A trade war with Japan is what he... Essentially, what he's doing with China now is what he was advocating for back in the 80s with with Japan. At the risk of, uh, you know, sounding like a Trump supporter, I do want to say that there's a bit more realism tied into that view of things. (laughs) That that i don't think that china was ever a friend of the us in that sense that they had any intention of helping us realize our dream of them china just wanted to do what they wanted to do and if we we're going to delude ourselves and make stupid moves as we did like basically give like outsource so much of our industrial base over to china uh and allow our companies to do that and in the process essentially become chinese companies uh china's like well if you're that dumb why would i why would i say no and Trump even said as much when he said in in one of this one one of his speeches announcing the trade war that he doesn't blame China. He said, "I don't blame the Chinese. If I were Chinese, I'd do the same thing. I blame the leaders of the U.S. that had allowed this to happen." Now, I just think that there has to be something said to that point of view. I think it's actually closer to reality yeah, than I agree with that. the liberal delusions. I agree. So
2: i mean the the thing is like the they weren't deluded they weren't you know they were self-deluded in a patronizing selfish way it wasn't like they were deluding themselves like oh we're we're such morally superior um you know like self like savior like beings that's kind of um like a facade because underneath that they were like yes these dumb bitches we're gonna trick them and then there's gonna be a regime change and then they're gonna open up all their markets to us and it reminds me of like a guy who pretends to be a nice guy and then he gets real salty when he's friend-zoned by some woman who doesn't actually who sees through his acts that's what it reminds me of
1: that's but, the plan so, they take right there. That a
3: great analogy. So, so th-
1: that,
0: that's what that's why it's so irksome because you know a lot of these liberals do know the history of American colonialism, and so what keeps them from seeing uh, our reactions to China and 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 China's refusal to abide by uh, you know a, a from uh, to abide. Uh, by you know our actions as Americans like why isn't there a, a colonial anti-colonial framework of of looking at China's actions
3: Right. I, my, I mean, I'm a cynical bastard, but my answer to that is because China is actually a threat, right? I think there's a there's the, the thing about liberal largesse and the bleeding heart liberal perspective at least in America is that it's predicated on this um, assumption this feeling of security, right? It's like you don't actually pose a threat to me. So, you know, I and my great benevolence will help you and I will acknowledge the sad things that have been done to you. That's right. Cry crocodile tears. That's right. But if you actually pose a threat to me, then, you know, the blood's come off and I am not going to give you, I'm not going to concede moral ground to you.
1: I think for a white liberal, I think that's a bit of a cover story for what they're really experiencing I think in America because look I mean face it most people don't know what the fuck is going on in China I mean they barely know it's like a little bit of the re- of the news intake that their their news diet they probably have never been probably don't think about it that much as, as a Chinese American I think about it a hell of a lot more than your typical American would but I think with the liberal antagonism towards China that it does kind of just alleviate I mean, I think it serves to alleviate them from the position as the dominant hegemonic cultural force in America, and America the dominant hegemonic cultural force in the world, and therefore, they're the apex race, they're the apex man, and being as such, it gets fucking exhausting, because everyone talks shit about you all day, and you just have to sit there and take it with your liberal white guilt, right, that's, you gotta put on the liberal white guilt show all day, in order to maintain your self... Anointed, you know pole position as you know the alpha man and i think white guilt has often been performed as a sort of show of i'm at the very top concern. and i do think it is relax. there's a relaxation and a and a relief to finally be able to point the finger at someone else i think there's part part of that for example like matt stone and trey parker And all their whole thing about, you know, we're going to go after Xi and we're going to talk truth to power when it comes to China. Look, I mean, their show was, was in fact banned in China. And it's kind of silly that they did that. And matt parker and trey stone uh, is trey parker matt stone they should be given some credit for the amount to which they've skewered white america over the past however many decades they've taken a real needle at white america uh and have been consistent about it and it probably feels really good for them to finally talk shit about another race without feeling and and navigating white guilt while doing it they can just unwrap relax and just talk shit about someone else for once you know yeah
2: but i it, it annoys me that it's always the asians that have to take that heat. Like, fuck you.
1: Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm, I I can't say that I'm unhappy about the fact that China is a powerful country and can determine its own fate and can give the middle finger to the to the United States and can cause a, a great amount of anxiety in the United States simply by doing whatever it's doing. Um, I'd rather China be that than, than it was in the early and, and mid-90s when China had to, because it was a weak country at that point, much weaker than it is now, had to do publicly humiliating performance art in alleviating, uh, you know, American anxieties about it and was a supplicant country
2: compared to now, you know? Yeah, it's definitely better now.
1: And I think that,
0: you know, we can say that not from like a faux Asian nationalism perspective. You say that because from as an American perspective, right? Because we will become better Americans if... If our identities are not attached to the fragileness of needing to shit on a moral high ground, not to to sit on a moral high ground, right? I mean, I I, I find... I find, uh, Tien, your earlier point on the idea that there is something uniquely sort of, you know, uniquely Asian to, to Chinese people um, in, in contrast from like Koreans and Japanese kind of interesting, right? Uh, that 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 there's something uniquely foreign, uniquely bad, uniquely something. Um, because the reason why I find that, that uh, point interesting is that if you look at the diaspora, though, the narrative is flipped, right? We... The diaspora that we know, I've always heard, oh, Japanese people are more tribal. Korean people are more tribal. They, you know, they're more comfortable in their own skin, uh, you know, as opposed to sort of the assimilating Chinese, right? Um, like they're, they're, you know, they are more willing to hang out with their own in college, stuff like that, all these narratives. And and I don't think these competing narratives are necessarily, uh, in, you know, I don't think they contradict you each other because i don't i don't think think, so either because i think a lot of diaspora identity is in response to the incentives that white americans make for us right i think that there is something to why why are is uh, chinese american identity so assimilating because of the unique threat china poses right they run in lockstep
2: yeah and if you look at japanese american identity like post world war ii it was so much more assimilationist uh than even like chinese american identity is now and that you know it's like totally in response i mean they had um they had a policy of like relocating japanese americans you know like like they they wouldn't be allowed to live within you know a certain like mileage from each other like each family was relocated like uh, to prevent um you know, clumping or like any kind of national I- or like Japanese American identity to form. So it was like totally in response to whatever racial or ethnic trauma they experienced as immigrants.
3: Do we think? Yes. Uh, do, do we think that uh, this, you know, increased xenophobia will have a proportional effect in kind of Shaping Asian identity or Chinese identity, will it make you know Chinese kids afraid to identify overtly with Chineseness, and will it make
0: absolutely Asian
3: diaspora more divided?
0: You know, absolutely. You know, sinophobia. If you look at um, the waves of sinophobia, particularly uh, leading up to Chinese exclusion, right? There was a hundred years uh, before ch- full-blown Chinese exclusion. Um, there was a hundred years of sort of local and federal. Um, sort of playing around with Chinese restriction before china and and really it was sort of the fact that sort of poor whites um, the poor white working class was not appeased by these pilots of restriction that they that 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 Congress deemed it necessary for full-blown exclusion, right and and I think it's really, I think we could learn from history here because sinophobia has always divided the Chinese American community on class lines. And you see that now, right? You see um, you, you see high class Asian Americans shitting on low class Asian Americans in response to like latent sinophobia, right? And um, you, you know you saw that uh, Where do you see like where do you
1: see that though on onli- sorry, j- I just want to be clear. Where do you see that like online or in real life or
0: Oh yeah, you see all the above. I mean, in my hometown uh, Troy, Michigan, right? I I like you see that uh with the influx of uh, of you know, Chinese mainland Chinese coming in and and people kind of like high class Asians sort of being like, "Oh, you know, th- they're going to make it bad for us," right? Um and so I, I how to respond as a diaspora Asian and not only as a diaspora Asian but as a di- diaspora Chinese. I think that my pers- This is my personal opinion. This is not, you know, Plan A's or any of you guys's. But for those with any intersectionally Chinese identity, assert yourself as unapologetically Chinese. I know what the incentives are. I know what the incentives are in modern day. It, if you have any other form of identity, uh, to to replace that with your Chinese one. If you are queer. If you are a woman. If you are, you know, from. If you're a Midwestern uh, American, like to 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 sort of substitute that, but. My, I think we as Chinese Americans should assert ourselves as unapologetically Chinese as an expression of our American identity. If that makes sense, uh,
3: I, I totally agree with that. But what do you mean by Chinese identity? Because I mean this this is a you know a straw man. But like a lot of, for a lot of high class Asians, Chinese identity is whatever you see in cra- in Crazy Rich Asians. Like I make dumplings. I have um, tortured thoughts about being a good daughter to my parents. You know, that presumably is not actually I think the what context
2: of xenophobia is to just say, I'm Chinese, you know, and like, let <laughs> that be the end yep. end of it. You know, like, don't say I'm Chinese, but I'm this other thing, so you can be okay with me to, like, to appease anybody.
1: I, I think that's right. I think there's so much bullshit in, in xenophobia. Because, see, xenophobia is, is bullshit, right? It's not just that it's not... A nice thing to do it's predicated on lies it's predicated on like we said it's predicated on totally bullshit projections of our own problems it's a total misperception of China and everything that white people say about China is wrong anyway so you don't really have to be like you know hey no you know what in this like valid debate about chineseness in society I side with the Chinese because I'm a, I'm a traitor no it's like I'm Chinese and I can tell you everything you're saying about China everything that's coming out of your mouth is dumb and you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I think that's being Chinese in a way. It's just calling out the idiocy of Sinophobia. and that is fundamentally American because it's pathetic that that's the stuff that America is engaging in. I'm like, we have better things to talk about. I'd rather they just not talk about China at all. Let's just focus on our actual problems here. Let's talk about healthcare.
2: Yeah, we got fucking issues.
1: We got fucking issues. Who cares what's going on in China? I don't care. We got fucking oh, issues. You
2: know what China has? Fucking healthcare. Yeah. They have healthcare, yeah.
3: also subways, workable transportation, and a lack
1: of wildfires. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> if y'all so concerned about them copying us, let's go hit back. Let's go copy their shit. I would be happy for America to copy Chinese shit if they wanted to be like, yo, you know, we're gonna build high speed rail everywhere just like the Chinese did. Because fuck them, we're gonna steal their ideas. I'd be like, yeah, fuck them, steal their ideas, build high speed every, you know, build high speed trains everywhere you want. What's wrong? You know, it's just like it's, I'm just frustrated with the mode of you know, just how we use Sinophobia to make excuses. And Ray, that is American, right? It's like, let's not fucking use... Ch- Sorry, what I gather
3: is that you don't need to know anything particular about China, right, to push back on this? No, because I think, I think it's really tough. I don't think when, as an American you said, ain't gotta know shit. Because yeah. I think it's hard in practice when someone is like, oh my God, like, China is putting Muslims in concentration camps, or China spying on all of us blah, 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 aren't you afraid of what China's doing in Hong Kong? I think it's kind of, in practice,
1: hard for
3: someone to just straight up say, like, yeah, I'm
1: Chinese, fuck you. You mean when they're saying that? No, well, that's the point of this pod. I'm like, okay, you can talk about Xinjiang all you want, but number one is, when the fuck did you start caring about Uyghurs? And number 2 is what happened to Guantanamo? Is that shit closed? Let's fix that first, right? Let's fix that first. Let's uh let's end the war in Afghanistan. Let's do that shit. Let's let's not worry about Xinjiang just yet. That's step like 8. Teen, I I think that I think that what
0: um I think a lot of what liberals the counter um the liberal counterargument to that would be like, "Oh, that's a whataboutism," right? That's a whataboutism. But I think that what we're trying to say is so much of American identity is predicated on whataboutism, right? You know, we we point at other people's unrest when we have our own. We point at other, uh, you know, like countries deficiencies when we have plenty of our own. And I think that, that there is an idea that like that. I think uh, whataboutism is a credible argument because so much of our identity is a whataboutism. No, fuck
1: it. No, no, it's not Ray. Whataboutism is total bullshit. Because in America, whataboutism is an- is anathema to our self-styled Amer- national identity. We're not a moral relativist nation. We're America. We have our we have supposedly our own standards. We have a vision of what the world is supposed to be, right? We have a vision of what our country is supposed to be. What about ism is, is a bullshit deflection to say, well, you know, um, what we do doesn't really matter because our, our, our job is to go and, and, uh, and, and, and just think about what other people are doing well, like, also, no, I, I think- we have to live by our own standards consistency moral consistency and avoiding hypocrisy see those things are hard to argue against so they've come up with something like whataboutism there's no such thing as whataboutism whataboutism is just another catchphrase that you can use whenever someone is avoiding an accusation of hypocrisy hypocrisy is the issue not whataboutism so, practice what you preach.
3: Yeah. Uh, what, first of all, whataboutism came um, around during the Cold War when uh, the Soviet Union would, you know, in response to human rights abuse accusations from the U.S., they would say, yeah, but you guys lynch black people, right? And that's why we called it whataboutism. Uh, but the fact that the Soviet Union wasn't sincere in saying that didn't make it any less true, right? Exactly. That what we were doing were wrong. That's. I think we forget that. Second... Uh, I think, I I don't know if I'm getting um, what Ray is saying correctly, but I think, you know, if you're a citizen in a democratic country, you know, you kind of have a civic responsibility to dedicate the most effort to solving the problems that you are most best positioned to address. And as a citizen of this country, wouldn't you be best positioned to address American problems? Right? Yes. It's yes, like, totally. I think your resp- it's like with but, with yeah, you know absolutely. power to the extent that you have any power as a citizen, right? It should be allocated uh towards solving the problems in the country that you you belong. Right? You have very little power to change China. You have a lot of power to change America.
1: Absolutely. Totally. Absolutely. Totally. So, I agree with that and 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 I think that, you know, I do feel better talking to you all about this because now I feel that you know, there's no need to feel trapped between these two great powers that are, you know, fighting it out for space on this earth and one shall survive and who do we stand with and all this shit. I think that a lot of this is bullshit. A lot of it just needs to be called out. I think a lot of Asian American, I think in a way it's it's almost easier to call out now because this stuff that they're saying is just so egregiously dumb. That it offends the basic sensibility of even like non-politically activated Asian Americans can just smell it. They're just like, this is bullshit. Like so many people I know are just like, yeah, this is bullshit. I, I, I've, I've spent my whole life putting up with bullshit and low level bullshit. Now this, they've turned the volume up to 11 on it. And I think it has the potential and I think it's already doing this. It's pissing so many people off, especially Asian Americans that. In a way, Ray, I think it's almost going to be easier to stand up and declare that these days. It's not going to be harder. I think it's going to be easier. Just because the bullshit detector has gone off the fucking chart, you know?
2: Yeah, that's how I feel personally.
1: That's cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Worked it all out. Shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. I've, I'm done ranting. I feel good. How about you all? Any last thoughts, Diana? I
2: feel great.
1: Sweet. <laughs> yeah, I, I Rich, How do you that- feel, man? You feel better?
3: And I I would say that, um, I guess, you know, if you don't belong to a Chinese ethnicity, I think you can, you kind of, Asian Americans have a spidey sense for this kind of stuff, right? I think we are primed to detect a certain kind of hypocrisy in racial discourse and in political discourse. So I don't think you really need to, and I I know it was mentioned on Discord a while back, right? It's like, what if I don't know anything about China? What if I'm not Chinese American and I'm not like directly invested in it? Well, you don't need to be, and you don't need to know anything. You just need to trust your instincts. If something sounds yeah. like complete bullshit or it sounds like white deflection, probably is.
1: Rich just to back up what you're saying. I, I you know, I don't even think it has to be racial because I sense I feel the same level of sh- bullshit and 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 just fucking anger when they do it to Russians because they do it to Russians all the time. Oh yeah. yeah. And and I'm, you know, we're, they're not Chinese, they're not Asian, but it just pisses me off because I know what these fucks are up to. I'm just like, there's more of your liberal bullshit, shut the fuck up. Well,
3: it's, I mean, we, it's it's, it's uh, easier to talk about Russian hacking. I mean, look, Russian hacking exists, I don't think anyone denies it, but the problem is, the reason why we talk about it is because it's easier to talk about that than the fact that our political discourse and, and is so absolutely fucked that you have like 30 or 40% of the country that will literally believe anything right or that you have state yeah, I mean look look
1: we voted we knew everything about Trump. We voted that fucker yeah, into office. Stop the blaming the Russians for so our we vote. Shut up. Out of
3: office and
1: we failed. Yeah, exactly. Stop blaming the Russians. All right. Next, you know what I mean? Like it's bullshit. It's it's I, I don't need to be Russian to to know that that's going on, you know. Um so
0: and you know, at a minimum if if you can't assert yourselves as unapologetic unapologetically Chinese as a communication of your American identity, at a minimum stop like shitting on uh, and buying into these sort of bad China myths um, as, as your own social shield, at a minimum
1: totally that's harder. That's a bit of That's a bigger ask, Ray. But yeah, I agree with you. Cool. Um, so that's the end of our uh, podcast. We just did what's known as a Brexit, which I learned about today, which is when you announce you're going to end something and then you just don't end it. You just keep talking. Uh, that's with the oh, plan A I Brexit. Right thing? there.
2: Can I say sure, one more thing? Sure, it's a Brexit. Thing? You can say whatever. Yeah. Tre- uh, I'm yeah. Theresa May. I'm just gonna keep things <laughs> <get> moving along. <laughs> no, but I mean, I just feel like. At least they're going to talk the talk, but they're not going to walk the walk. And if you look at history, like the only times like really terrible legislation has uh, been enacted uh, in terms of like yellow peril, it's been when like a particular country has been at war or when they were just like politically and economically very weak so neither of those things are going to be true are are true or going to be true about china in for a while so i feel like now's a good time to just say fuck you you know i'm chinese fuck you
1: yeah i'm going i'm going back to china on uh, november uh 15th i'm I'm really looking forward to it
2: (laughs) (laughs) Nice.
1: i'm going to go for a month all right